Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 25, uh, a reminder um, that we will not meet next week. Is that correct? Because of the tea room, I believe. So just bear that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, that if you have friends from other churches who attend this class, just remind them that we will not be gathering next week. But God willing, we will resume the following week. So that's a little bit of house cleaning as we begin. We're in Acts chapter 25. We're going to go ahead and read first through verses 1 through 12. And um, then come back and take a closer look at it. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty up here. So I apologize for that. In fact, let me fix it real quick if I can. I think I know what the problem is. Okay. Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried, To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, if you know... Where we are so far in the book of Acts, and if you're joining us perhaps for the first time or for some time, the situation is this. Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem. He had been accused of having defiled the sanctuary, the temple. In fact, he had not done that. It was a false charge. But nevertheless, a riot broke out. He was taken into protective custody by the Romans. And eventually he was taken to Caesarea Maritima, which was the headquarters of the Roman government in the province province of Judea. And there, because he was a Roman citizen, he was to stand trial before the Roman governor, which he did. He stood trial before Antonius Felix. But Felix could not make a decision about Paul. It wasn't that he was unclear as to the facts. Uh, He had actually been governor of this province for some time. The problem, of course, was that he was extremely corrupt. We noted that about his administration. It was noted for its graft and for all kinds of dishonest behavior. Uh, In fact, 
he would be eventually recalled to Rome, recalled by Nero himself, who we said was by no means a bastion of morality. But that's how corrupt this governor was. And he had kept Paul there in custody for two years. Now, so much for a speedy trial. As a Roman citizen, Paul was entitled to have a quick trial, speedy justice. But the governor had refused to do that. And the text tells us why. We are told that he was hoping that either Paul or one of Paul's acolytes would provide him with a bribe. So he was holding out hope that somebody would pay him off. And so he refused to let Paul go free. And yet, nevertheless, we're told he was intrigued by Paul. And from time to time, he would invite Paul to come up and speak, and Paul, we're told, would preach to him. And he would preach on subjects like righteousness and self-control, the very things that were the opposite of the governor's life. And we're told that the governor, when Paul would do this, would feel convicted. I believe that's the Holy Spirit working on a person's life. He, he began to, to sense that what Paul was saying really applied to his life and to his circumstances. And then we're told he would always say to Paul, oh no, now go away and I'll call for you at some more convenient time. Some years ago I was reading the story of a man who was a filmmaker in Great Britain and he was doing a um, documentary on the English cathedrals. And he was an unbeliever. And uh, he tells the story of how he was going in and, and doing this documentary, and they had the film crew in there, and it was an even song. I think it was at York Minster Cathedral, and if you've ever been to York Minster, it's one of my favorites in England. It's a magnificent church. And he was sitting there in York Minster Cathedral, and he was listening to the boys' choir sing even song, and he was looking at the architecture, and he said he just felt as though he was just being overwhelmed. There was... John Wesley described as this strange warming of the heart. And the person who was interviewing him asked him, what did he do? And he said, I got out of there as fast as I could. <laughs> and they said, why? And he said, because I knew that if I bought into this, I was going to have to change. And he said, to be perfectly honest, I was not prepared to change. That's a very dangerous place to be, you see. And you know that the Holy Spirit is working against you, and you may even know that it's the Holy Spirit, and still you refuse to believe. Incidentally, I think this is what the New Testament refers to as the unforgivable sin. It's when you know that it is the work of the Holy Spirit, He is convicting you in your heart and your mind, and you still willfully refuse to acknowledge it. At that point, what sacrifice is left for sin, you see? And I think that was the case for this governor. He was convicted by what Paul was saying, but he was not prepared to change, neither he nor his wife. And so he refused to make a decision about the Apostle Paul. And we said last week that the real tragedy was not that he failed to make a decision about Paul. Certainly that was unfair, it was unjust. He was a, he was a judge, he had a responsibility to render a decision, but that wasn't the real problem. The real problem for the governor was that he failed to make a decision about the Lord that Paul was proclaiming. And as far as we know today, he passed from history and he entered into hell for all eternity. It's tragic, but the decisions we make in this life do indeed affect our eternal destiny. And that was the case with this governor. Well, eventually, as I said, he would be recalled to Rome. And when he was recalled to Rome, poor Paul was left there languishing in Caesarea. But the Roman government was very efficient. You can say anything at all about the Romans, you can say they were efficient. 
And when this governor was recalled, he was immediately replaced, and he was replaced by a man by the name of Portius Festus. We don't know much about Portius Festus, but what we can glean from the scriptures indicates that he was the polar opposite of Felix. If Felix was indecisive, if Felix was somehow dishonest, this governor was not. Festus was very decisive, and indeed he was probably sent there to clean up the mess that Felix had left behind. And so when he arrives there in Caesarea Maritima to take up his new post, the first thing that he discovers as he starts to go through the books and the records, etc., is that there is a man who has been held here as a prisoner for two years. He's been tried, but no decision has been rendered. And to make matters worse, he is a Roman citizen. And so almost immediately, we're told, after he arrived, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. That's how we can tell that he's very different from his predecessors. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he's traveled a great distance. He's arrived in the province. He doesn't know anything about it. Felix, you'll recall, was married to a Jewess. Somebody was well acquainted with the way, well acquainted with the Jewish religion and the followers of Christ. This man was not familiar with any of those things, as the story makes very clear. And yet three days after he arrives in the province, what does he do? He goes up to Jerusalem. He goes up to Jerusalem to see what's going on in that city, what this is all about. And the first thing he does is he meets with the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews who lay out their case against Paul. Now you can understand the situation that this governor's in. He's got to maintain the peace, which is a very difficult thing to do in this Roman province. It's a wonderful thing to be named a Roman governor. It was not so wonderful a thing to be named a Roman governor of Judea. This was a hotbed of trouble in the ancient world, and it was very difficult. And yet it was the responsibility of the governor to maintain the peace and not to trouble the emperor. And so when he arrives there, the first thing he does is he goes up to Jerusalem to sort of gauge for himself the situation. And when he gets up there... He immediately brings up this subject of this man by the name of Paul, this Roman citizen, and they lay out their case against him. At which point, they encourage the governor to do what? Bring Paul down. Bring Paul down to Jerusalem. Really, they would have said, up to Jerusalem, that you can try him here, and, and, and we'll be here after all. The Sanhedrin is a rather large body, Your Excellency, so bring Paul here, and we can try him and uh, we can get to the bottom of this, and you can get this man off your books. But of course, we're told that what? All along, they wanted to ambush Paul. Now, I have a sense that this governor, Festus, was probably pretty savvy, because while we're told later on that he wanted to do the Jews a favor, in other words, you know, he's new to the job, he doesn't want to immediately cause any ripples, he wants to come in here. He wants to maintain a cordial relationship with these people whom he has to govern. But I think he probably got a pretty good sense of what they were all about. And what does he say? He says, no, no, I'm going up to Caesarea, and uh, I will listen to his case. You come to me. This is the governor's way of reminding these people that he's willing to work with them but Rome is calling the shots. They will not call the shots. He will call the shots. Paul stands trial three times in the book of Acts. And there are a lot of similarities between the three stories. 
He stands trial before the Roman governor Felix. He's going to stand trial before this Roman governor, Festus. And then finally, he's going to stand trial before the Jewish king Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Now, you might ask yourself, well, why in the world does Luke retell this story three times? Because for the most part, the charges are the same over and over again. Why does Luke spill so much ink, take so much time to retell this story over and over again when many of the circumstances are identical? I think because the actors change, and the actors represent different facets of society. (coughs) So I call this a three-part play, and this is Act Two. And here are the actors. The first are the Jews. Now, when it says the Jews, what I mean by that are the Jewish religious leaders. Incidentally, when you read through the Gospel of John, you'll notice that the word Jew is used frequently, and um, it's from John's use of the word Jew that for many centuries, Christians, uh, even at the time of the Reformation, were off the anti-Semitic. They blamed the Jewish people for the crucifixion of the Savior of the world. But you need to put things in their historical context. When John, in his Gospel, refers to the Jews, he's not referring to the Jewish people as a race. This is almost always an exclusive reference to the Jewish religious leaders. That is to say, the scribes, the Pharisees, the members of the ruling council. The same is true here in the book of Acts, at least on this occasion. We're told that Paul was going to stand trial before the governor, and he was going to be accused by the Jews. But the Jews that we're referring to here are the religious leaders, not the people as a whole, but the Jewish religious leaders. I say they represent something. What do they represent? They represent the corrupting influence of religion. You know, religion can be a corrupting influence. It can be a very positive influence, but we cannot deny the fact that throughout the course of history, some terrible, very terrible things have been done in the name of religion. And oftentimes there is no zeal like a religious zeal. And so you have to be very careful about that. Even Christian religion can be corrupting. That is to say, people can do terrible things in the name of Christ, even though they are not acting in a Christ-like manner. Uh, A great example of this in the Middle Ages, of course, would have been when you had organizations that went out and took people and tried them for heresy and burned them at the stake. Uh, We would probably look at that and say that's not particularly Christ-like, but it was done in the name of the church. So the Jews represent the corrupting influence of religion. And there's something that I want you to notice about them here. If you go back to Acts chapter 23 for just a minute, Acts chapter 23, verse 12, when Paul is first arrested in Jerusalem and taken into protective custody... We're told, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy, and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Two chapters earlier in the book of Acts, we're told that there was a conspiracy to kill Paul. But who hatched the plot? It wasn't the Jewish religious leaders on that occasion. 
It was the zealots. It was the zealots who went up to the Jewish Sanhedrin, to the leaders, and said, here's what we have determined to do. Now, we would like your help. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is request that the tribune, that is the Roman officer, bring Paul out, and we'll take care of the rest. And so what you find are the Jewish religious leaders on that occasion conspiring to end Paul's life, but they are not the leaders of the plot. They are simply accessories, we would say, to the crime. Now look at what happens when you get to Acts chapter 25, verse 3. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush and kill him on the way. This is two years later. Remember, Paul has been held in captivity for two years. It's only two chapters later, but it's two years later. People are still plotting to ambush Paul and kill Paul, but who's doing the plotting now? Who's leading? Well, it's not the zealots, you see. It's not those fringe elements anymore. It's the leaders of the people themselves. Now, you think about that for a minute. Of all people, these are the ones that shouldn't have been doing that sort of thing. These were the leaders of the people, if for no other reason than the Ten Commandments, which explicitly stated, thou shalt not murder. They shouldn't have been doing this. Ah, but you see, religion can do that to you. It can blind you. It's one of the reasons I always say to you, Christianity is really not so much about religion. It's about relationship. It's about a person. It's about having a relationship with that person. These people had a religion. They had an old religion. They followed its rules and its regulations, but it was not what we would call a living faith. They were worshiping God, but they were not worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, which is the way that God wants His people to worship Him. And so they were blinded by their religious zeal. And they represent that corrupting influence this is exactly why the Protestant Reformation took place in the 16th century, wasn't it? The idea here was not to revolutionize the church, but to reform it. Why? Because it had become corrupted. All the vines and tendrils of tradition had grown up and it obscured the real thing. That is exactly what had happened with these Jewish religious leaders, and that's what they represent. Second player in this second act is the governor himself, Portius Festus. What does he represent? He represents what I call the corrupting influence of politics. He was new to the region. He was a man of action. And yet, what he wanted to do more than anything else was to ingratiate himself to the emperor, to do his job, and he really wasn't too concerned about justice. How do we know that? Because while he makes it very clear to these people that he's in charge, that they're going to come and make their case against Paul, and even though he knew Paul was a Roman citizen, we're told in verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? What that tells us is that the governor knew that these people were plotting against Paul. And what he wanted to do was to take Paul up to Jerusalem, and if Paul got killed along the way, well, that was not his fault at all. 
he wanted to do the Jews, that is the Jewish religious leaders, a favor. On the one hand, he wanted to do his job. He didn't want to appear to be biased, but on the other hand, if this man, whose life was of no consequence to him whatsoever, happened to be killed along the way, well, so be it. We've got bigger fish to fry. Are there people like that in American society today? Are there people like that in the world today that will do anything in order to advance their own position? How many of you are familiar with Charles Colson, who died just a few years ago, founder of Prison Ministry Fellowship? <coughs> As you probably know, uh, he was uh, one of the counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. This is a real story. In fact, I'll tell you, um, we had a track rack at the back of St. Helena's Church when I was there. And uh, visitors would come in. We had a docent ministry like we do here at St. Philip's. And uh, this man, I was, happened to be in the church one day. I was not the docent. I was just coming through the church one day, and there was a man standing in the narthex, and he was giving the docent an earful. And I came back, and I saw this kind of, quite frankly, uh, tried to sneak around. I didn't want to get in the middle of it. The man said, hey! And I thought, uh-oh. He saw me in the collar, and he said, are you the rector? And I said, I sure am. He said, well, I want you to know I would never go to this church. I said, well, gee, I'm sorry. Have you been here before? He goes, no. I said, well, you're obviously agitated. I said, what, what's upset you? He said, that track rack. He said, you've got a track there titled Born Again by Chuck Colson. And I said, yes. He goes, Chuck Colson, now excuse me, ladies, was a son of a bitch. <laughs> I thought, what in the world? It turns out he had worked in Washington during the 1970s, and he knew Chuck Colson prior to his conversion. And you know what? If you had talked to Chuck Colson, he would have agreed with that analysis prior to his conversion. In fact, Chuck Colson said, if the truth be known, I would have climbed over the back of my dead mother or grandmother in order to protect the President of the United States. Now, the whole reason he wrote that track called Born Again is because he had a transformation. And it's a transformation comparable to the transformation of the Apostle Paul, because that is exactly what Paul would have done. But there are people, you see, who are willing to do anything, say anything, risk anything, for political gain. There's a new movie out. I haven't seen it yet, but it has to do with Chappaquiddick. I'm sure many of you are very familiar with that. That's, this is the sort of thing that you see Americans just want. We eat this stuff up with a spoon. And so what does Portius Festus represent? He represents that sort of corrupting influence, the influence of politics. The whole goal, you see, is to advance yourself. And then we have the Apostle Paul. He's the third actor in this drama. And what does Paul represent? Paul represents the falsely accused. There are those people who are just, unfortunately, collateral damage oftentimes in these great power conflicts. And that was the case with Paul. There was a power conflict between the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, and between the Roman governor, and Paul was simply a pawn in that great conflict. So these are the players. What are the charges brought against Paul? Uh, well, we're told that they were many, and they were serious charges. We're not told explicitly what they were. 
In this particular story of Paul's trial before the Roman governor, Portius Festus, we're never really told what the charges specifically were. Now, everybody's entitled to know what the charges being brought against them are, and Paul no doubt did. Luke simply doesn't tell us what they were, but we have an idea from the way that Paul responds what he was being accused of. Verse 8, but Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So evidently, Paul was being accused of first heresy. That is, he has broken the religious laws of the Jews. He denies that. He said, I have not broken any of the laws of the Jews. The second thing Paul is being accused of is sacrilege. We're told that he threatened to destroy the temple. Interestingly enough, Jesus was accused of precisely the same thing, wasn't he? When he was brought before Pontius Pilate, one of the charges brought against him was that he was threatening to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, if anybody had listened closely to what Jesus was saying, and anybody knew the size of the temple, they knew that was absolutely ridiculous. Jesus was clearly talking about something besides the second temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about the temple of his body. But you see, that didn't matter. They accused him of sacrilege, threatening the temple. And the Romans, as we've already noted, the last time we looked at Paul's trial before the first governor, we noticed that the temple was protected by Roman law. So Paul was accused of heresy, breaking the laws of the Jews, the religious laws. He was accused of sacrilege, threatening the temple itself. And finally, he was accused of crimes against Caesar. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. These are precisely the same charges brought against Jesus when he stood some years before, before a predecessor to this governor, Pontius Pilate. What was Jesus accused of having done? Having broken the laws of the Jews. All kinds of laws. This, this man works on the Sabbath. That's a violation. This man goes into the temple courts and he drives out the money changers. And in some occasions he's driven them out with a whip. This man breaks our laws. This man eats with unclean hands. This man welcomes sinners. Weren't those the charges that were brought against Jesus? Same charges brought against Paul. Jesus, as we've already seen, was accused of sacrilege, of threatening to destroy the temple. Evidently, Paul was accused of precisely the same thing, of taking Jews, or rather Gentiles, into the temple courts in violation of the Jewish law. And finally, wasn't Jesus accused of treason, treason against the state. Pontius Pilate came out, washed his hands in front of the people, and he said, I've examined this man. He's got some strange ideas about religion. I don't deny it, but if that's the case, go and try him yourself. He hasn't broken any Roman laws. I wash my hands. I'm free of this matter. I'm releasing him. And the people begin to shout, this man claims to be a king, and we have no king but Caesar. And if you release him, you are no friend of Caesar's. And that's when Pontius Pilate became very frightened. Why? Because his job was to be a friend of Caesar. Well, I think one of the reasons why these were the charges brought against Paul, and they were false charges brought against Paul in the same way that they were false charges brought against Jesus, but the reason that they brought these precise charges against Paul was because those charges worked against Jesus. Jesus, in the end, was ultimately what? Crucified. 
And the assumption was the same charges will work against Paul. You know, there will be times in our lives, particularly as Christians, if we are true to the gospel, when we will be falsely accused. And I would go so far as to say that while these were the same charges brought against the Lord Jesus, they are also the same charges to some degree or another are often brought against the followers of Jesus, Paul and Paul's successors. We would put them in slightly different language, but it's the same principle. These Christians, they disregard the laws and the customs of the people. Are we finding that to be the case in America today? As Christians, do we find ourselves oftentimes at odds with the decisions of our legislative bodies? Do we oftentimes find ourselves in opposition to the laws of our nations, particularly when they undermine our religious freedom, particularly when they advocate things that are contrary to God's word written? Do we find ourselves oftentimes being countercultural? I would go so far as to suggest to you that if you are not being countercultural, if you don't seem to be in any way rubbing up against the culture around you, the chances are you are probably not being particularly faithful. Why? Because Jesus said, if you are going to follow me, if I am going to be the Lord, you will run up against the world. You will run up against the culture. Now, that's not to say that America is not a great nation. Of course it is the greatest nation in the world. But the more secular the nation becomes, the more the nation forgets its Christian roots, one might argue the more un-American we tend to be. We're oftentimes accused, well, these people just don't get along with everybody else. These Christians are always trying to ram their religion down our throat. They disregard the laws and the customs of the nation. There are going to be times when, as Christians, we may have to do that. The time may come sooner rather than later when to stand up and say that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and the only way to the Father might be classified, and it's not too far off, as a form of hate speech. And the question is, what will we do at that time as Americans? Followers of Jesus are oftentimes acute of not adhering to the religion of the people. That is to say, you find yourself oftentimes going against the denomination. I don't need to say any more about that than you already know. And finally, they're guilty of treason. Now, that may not be the case in America today, but it certainly is the case in other parts of the world, where in order to be faithful to Jesus Christ, they find that their very lives are put on the line. Certainly in communist countries where you are not allowed to evangelize. Some of you have been on mission trips to countries where you are not permitted to evangelize, to speak the name of Jesus Christ. And yet, we are commanded to do so. What were Jesus' final words to his disciples? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men. If you do that sort of thing in other places, you will be guilty of treason. Now, as we've seen, these are serious, serious charges. If Paul is found guilty, what's going to happen? He's going to be executed, the same way that Jesus was going to be executed. What happens? What does the governor do when he hears these serious charges. Well, look at verse 7. When the governor had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, and they brought many and serious charges against Paul. Charges, however, latter part of verse 7, 
they could not prove. In other words, they could not bring any substantial evidence to back up the claims that they were making against Paul. That is made very clear. Luke says they could not prove them. And yet Paul, if the governor was savvy, Paul was also savvy. And he could tell where this was going. He could tell that the, the governor was in an awkward place. He knew the story of Jesus. He knew what had happened with Pontius Pilate. He knew where this was going. But Paul had one advantage in this circumstance that Jesus did not have when he stood trial before Pontius Pilate. And what was that advantage? Ah, that's it. Jesus was not a Roman citizen, but Paul was a Roman citizen. And we have already seen that on several occasions, Paul was willing, if necessary, to invoke that citizenship, the rights that he had as a subject of the empire. And that's exactly what he does on this occasion. In verse 11 and 12, when the governor suggests that they take Paul up to Jerusalem, oh, come on, Paul, why don't we take you up to Jerusalem? After all, you're a Jew. You can speak before your own people. Wouldn't you feel better about standing trial there? And Paul knows very well what they're plotting to do. He knows he'll never make it to Jerusalem. And so what does he do? He outwits his adversaries. He says, there is nothing in their charges against me. No one has a right to give them up. As a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. And when Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. What do you do when you find yourself in a situation like the Apostle Paul? If the time has not arrived in America or in the Western world, I promise you we are not far away from it. I think in our own lifetime you can look back and you can see how it's become more and more difficult for Christians in this culture. Uh, in Great Britain this has become very clear. There was a flight attendant on a British Airways flight. She was Muslim and she was wearing the headscarf and British Airways tried to have her remove that headscarf and she sued them in court and she won. A Christian flight attendant working for British Airways, the same airlines, was wearing a cross around her neck. Somebody took offense. British Airways asked her to take it off. She refused. They threatened to fire her. She sued and she lost. Have you noticed that in American society today? It's become quite fashionable. You can criticize nobody. You dare not criticize Islam. You dare not criticize Judaism. You dare not criticize any religion except for Christianity. You ever notice that? It's become quite fashionable, really, in American society today to make fun of Christianity. Now, that's where we are. We may not like it, but those are the circumstances. What do you do when you're in that kind of a situation? If you're not facing it, and you will, I think, but if you're not facing it, your children will, your grandchildren will, what do you do when you're falsely accused? I think three things. First of all, you do what the Apostle Paul did, and that is that you remember that God is still sovereign. That is to say, God is the author of circumstances. Whatever you are facing may take you by surprise. You may be shocked. But God is not. 
And God can use even your circumstances, what? To advance the cause of the gospel. Sometimes God can advance the cause of the gospel more by your suffering than he can by your happiness. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. Paul was in prison for what? For two years in Caesarea Maritima. You might think that he was put on the shelf. This man had been so active. He'd been going out and preaching the gospel and establishing churches and evangelizing the world. And for two years, he was denied justice, falsely accused, put on the shelf. And yet we can clearly see that Paul was not. It would be the means, by the means of these circumstances, his imprisonment there and his trial before this Roman governor, that he would ultimately go to Rome where he would ultimately bear witness before the most powerful witness on the face of the earth and even the members of the Praetorian Guard. And Paul would write later in one of his prison epistles that it was by this means that the gospel advanced through the royal household itself. So this just goes to show you that even in the midst of your circumstances, you can have confidence. Romans 8.28 says what? For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So when you're facing these difficult times, when you're facing opposition for the sake of the gospel, remember God is sovereign. It may seem bleak from a human perspective, but the reality is God is working out his purposes in your life. And oftentimes he does that more powerfully through suffering. You know, oftentimes the greatest Christians, the greatest heroes of the faith have been people who have faced great adversity. They're not people whose lives have been easy. That's what's so heroic. That's what's so inspiring about them. Second thing to remember is this. God's word is a light unto your path. It's a lamp unto your feet. It's a light unto your path. One of the reasons why it's so important to read Scripture is because Scripture is filled with examples of people who have been through difficult times, whose circumstances looked bleak, but who in the end were rescued by God. Isn't that the story of Easter? Can you imagine if the story just ended on Holy Saturday? Can you imagine if, 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 if Luke had decided to undertake telling the story of Jesus' life and he ended it with Holy Saturday. Thinking, well, that's the end of the story. Just imagine he's chronicling Jesus' life over the course of the three years, and he suddenly decides that it ends on Holy Saturday. Oh, that's so tragic. I'm finishing my book. I was hoping it was going to end better than that. So that's the end of it, and he closes the book, and he misses Easter. We would have said, Luke, you missed the best part of the story. Remember, whatever circumstances you're going through, they may seem like they're the end of the story, but they are not necessarily the end of the story. And the value of history, my friends, is that history is filled with examples of people whose lives have been redeemed by the power of God, even in the bleakest of circumstances. The scriptures are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What an encouragement that can be to us. So remember the scriptures. In those times when it's dark, go back to the scriptures. Read the stories of the heroes of the Old Testament. When you think that you are facing a giant and there's no way that you're going to bring that giant down, remember a little shepherd boy who went out dressed in armor and found that armor too much for him and decided that he would probably be better off with just one smooth stone.
Remember that man who, when he refused to bow down and worship the golden idol, was thrown into the lion's den. Or those three Hebrew youths who were thrown into the fiery furnace. Remember the Apostle Paul when he was imprisoned in Philippi. Remember Peter and John and the others when they were imprisoned in Jerusalem. And how God was mighty to save. Third thing is this. And this is the hardest part for us. Resolve in your mind. Resolve in your mind that no matter what comes your way, you are prepared to pay any price for the sake of Jesus Christ. That the Christian life is a life of sacrifice. And we are willing to pay a price in order to be the followers of Jesus Christ, but we are not always willing to pay any price. I'm reminded of a story that was told by Will Willimon, who was for many years a professor at Duke Divinity School. He had a whole group of divinity students one day, and uh, he was teaching them a class about sacrifice and giving your life for the sake of Christ and for his church. And he asked these divinity students, and this was only about a decade ago, so this is not long ago, he asked them what they would be willing to die for. And he looked around the room and there was silence. Now he thought they were just perhaps being a little shy, so he kind of began to probe. He said, well, how many of you think you'd be willing to die for your country? Give up your life for your country. I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Who said that? Nathan Hale. There you go. Nathan Hale. That's, that's tragic. Most American children have never even heard of Nathan Hale. It's unfortunate. But that was the question he was asking. How many of you are willing to give up your life for your country? And he said not one person in the room was willing to do it. He said, all right, well, how many of you are, are, are willing to give up your life for your family? A couple of people sheepishly raised their hand. They said, well, I, I hope, but, but, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. He said, how many of you people, I mean, you're divinity students after all, how many of you people are willing to give up your life for your faith? Nobody raised their hand. He said, let me ask you a question. Is there anything in life for which you are prepared to give up your life? Is there anything in this world that you are prepared to give up your life for? Nobody answered. He said, well, then that's unfortunate. You'll die for nothing then. It's true, isn't it? We're all going to die. The question is, are we willing to die for something, or will we die for nothing? We're all going to die. Isn't it better to die for something than to die for nothing? In times like this, if we are going to bear witness for Jesus Christ, if the gospel is going to go forth, you and I need to resolve in our minds that there are lines beyond which we will not, no matter what, go. And we have to be willing, by God's grace, to stand firm. I'm reminded of something that Alexander Solzhenitsyn said in the Gulag Archipelago. 
he was asked how it was that some prisoners, when he was imprisoned there in the Soviet Union, how it was that some prisoners cracked under the pressure, the pressure of torture and so forth, but others did not. He never did. And they said, what was the secret? And this is what Solzhenitsyn said. He said, at the very threshold, you must say to yourself, my life is over. A little bit early to be sure, but there's nothing to be done about it. I shall never return to freedom. I am condemned to die, now or a little later. But later on, in truth, it will be even harder, and so the sooner the better. You have to be willing to say, I no longer have any property whatsoever. For me, those I love have died, and for them I have died. From today on, my body is useless and alien to me. Only my spirit and my conscience remain precious to me. He said, confronted by such a prisoner, the interrogation will tremble. Only the man who has renounced everything can gain the victory. In other words, as long as you are clinging to the things of this life, as long as the things of this life are more precious to you than the life of the world to come, you will inevitably crack under the pressure. Is it any mistake then that Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That was the secret to Paul's success. He said, I have renounced all things he said, for me, to live is Christ. And what? To die is to gain. In other words, Paul considered himself dead to the things of this world. If he had to make a choice between Christ and the world, then he considered himself dead to the world. Are you dead to the world compared to being alive in Christ Jesus? See, we have a tendency to think that Christianity is the easy way. And oftentimes that's the way we present the gospel to people. We present the gospel to people and we say, oh, if you invite Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior, everything's going to get better from here on out. Well, tell that to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Things did not get better, at least not in this life. But Paul understood very clearly that this life is not all there is. See, this life is a drop in the bucket compared to what? To eternity. And that's what Paul was aiming for. He's aiming for eternity. He's thinking about the life of the world to come, which C.S. Lewis describes as that great story in which each chapter gets better than the one before, the great story that goes on forever. This life is nothing but the title page. We haven't even tasted of life. And so when the world begins to bring pressure against you, when the world wants you to conform, when the world wants you to crack, when the world wants to corrupt you with its religion, when the world wants to corrupt you with its politics, when you are falsely accused, what do you have to do? 
You have to remember that God is the author of your circumstances. You are not here by chance or by accident. Hold fast to the faith once delivered to the saints. Hark back to those who have been where you are. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. In other words, we are not the only ones to have ever gone through this. We are not the first to go through it, and we will not be the last, but we will set an example for those who will come after us. And so as Christians, let us resolve where that line is beyond which we will not go. And let us pray for the grace and the strength of the Holy Spirit to stand firm and to count everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. For whoever loses his life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, Jesus said, they will ever surely find it. Store not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's the line beyond which you won't go? If you don't know, let me encourage you to find out today. Now, we can go on. As you can well imagine, I'm prepared to do so. Um, <laughs> but that seems to me to be a good place to just pause for a moment and answer any questions that you may have or any concerns that you may have. Don't be shy. Yes, Todd. You sure can. And we'll be going through years after Pearl Harbor and the bombings, and so they were having this conversation. Then we're going to look at it and go, and you're a Christian. He goes, yes. He goes, tell us about your conversion now. I've got a theory about that. You want to hear Jeff Miller's theory about that? Um, uh, I think it starts a lot earlier. I think we like to say that the 1960s were a turning point in American society. I mean, Time magazine uh, decided that, Jesus, that God was dead in the 1960s. Well, obviously he came back um, because um, you had the 1980s and the rise of the moral majority and so forth. I think the roots of this go much further back in American society. I think some of the roots of this um, go back, quite frankly, and this is not meant in any critical way, just an observation, to the post-World War II era. And I just want you to think about this. 
Uh, in the 1930s, as you know, the, the, the nation was engulfed in a Great Depression. We had bread lines in the country. America was, for the most part, isolationist. Uh, we didn't want to get involved in European conflicts. What Europe did was Europe's business and that sort of thing. And we really didn't want to get involved in that, you know. Uh, in the wake of the First World War, um, Woodrow Wilson was advocating for a League of Nations. America was very reluctant to get involved in that sort of thing. <coughs> then the war came. And when the war came, of course, uh, young men went off, uh, young women went off and, and worked in factories. Rosie the Riveter, young men went off and fought. And we faced a, a threat that was not just a threat to America, but to the world. And this was something that we had not really faced in the First War. You realize that we got into the First World War for only the last two years of the conflict, really, basically. We, we, we were latecomers to that conflict. And we didn't even get involved in World War II until we were attacked by the Japanese. So we had been reluctant. If you've seen the, the movie The Darkest Hour, you know how poor um, Churchill is trying to persuade Franklin Roosevelt to give him some planes. And Roosevelt says in this famous conversation, well, you know, uh, Winston, we, we, we really can't uh, do that. I'm, I'm bound by the law, but we can take them to the Canadian border, and you can get some horses, and you can haul them across, or I suppose you could push them across. That was the American attitude. And we went through the Second World War, and we made the world safe for democracy. Now, that, that, that was what came out. We made the world safe for democracy. Tyranny, fascism, had been dealt with. But a lot of people, when we came through World War II, and now we were no longer in a depression. I mean, the war brought us out of the depression. And by the end of the war, because we were not bombed in the same way that the European cities were, America was a force to be reckoned with. We were the world power. We'd been the newcomer to the scene. We were now the world power. We had nuclear power. We'd, we developed the atomic bomb. Our cities were strong. Our economy was strong. Eisenhower was in the White House. Happy days are here again. That, that was the attitude. And a whole generation of men and women who had been the greatest generation, who had fought in the Second World War, who brought us out of the Depression, but who had been standing in the bread lines just a few years before, made a resolution. And here was their resolution. My children will have it better than I did. How many of you remember your parents or your grandparents saying that? My kids will have it better. Never again. And so they did. They did everything in their power to provide their children with the best opportunities, the best education, the best resources, just what we talked about in Sunday school this past week. The very best. And they did it out of the best of desires. And so, for example, my father was one of the first in his family to ever go to college. He was born in the midst of the war and first to go to college. And his brother went to college. His sister didn't. But they provided for the two boys. And they went to college and they had a fine education. And they, they saw education as a privilege. How many of you grew up in a time when education, college, was regarded as a privilege? How many young people regard college, university education as a privilege today? How many see it as an entitlement? It is a right. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to provide for our children the very best opportunities, educations. We wanted to provide for them. And what started off as a privilege became an entitlement. And one of the things that we passed on to them 
which we saw as a privilege, was the freedom to worship freely. But we never really taught them the implications of that. The implications of citizenship, the implications of what it means to be a part of the American nation. I mean, I, I, I made the comment that many people don't know who Nathan Hale is today. Many young people don't know who Nathan Hale is today. I asked the young man in his 30s yesterday, I won't tell you who he was, if he could name the first four presidents of the United States, and he could not do it. So something happened along the line where we forgot what it means to be American, what it means to have an identity as an American, and somewhere along the line, we inoculated our children and our grandchildren with a weak form of Christianity that was all moralism but no sense of sacrifice. And that has had a dangerous trickle-down effect into society to this very day. So that when we talk about the Christian faith, it has only a vague resemblance. And the other thing was this, and this was a dangerous thing that we did. In the post-World War II years, we combined American patriotism with Christian religion. We, we, what did we do? What, when, when we dealt with Hitler and, and, Sta, and, and um, Mussolini, then the question was asked, well, what's next? Who was the next big enemy? The Soviet Union. It was the beginning of the Cold War era. And the Soviets were what? Godless and communist. We were going to be God-fearing and democratic. And you saw a combination, you see, of patriotism and American religion. It was the first time, for example, that patriotic hymns appeared in hymnals. The first time that American flags had ever appeared in churches, in churches, was in the post-World War II or World War II era. And so there was a combination, you see, of social religion and Christianity. And then a whole new generation, when Vietnam came around, began to question all of the faith of their fathers. And I don't mean just their religious faith, but their patriotic fervor. Why are we fighting over here? I know why you went over and you fought in, in the Pacific, and I know why you fought in the European theater. I'm not so sure why we're fighting over here in Vietnam. I'm not, I'm not quite sure about that. And so when they began to question the policies, they began to question the patriotism, as a consequence, they also began to question what? the religion that had been tied in with it. And as a result, giving up the politics of their parents meant also sometimes giving up the religion of their parents. And we've sort of seen that trickle-down effect to this very day. I am a strong believer in the separation of church and state. Don't ever give that up as Americans. And I'll tell you why. Because whenever the state and the church come into conflict, guess who's always going to win? The state. And so I think that there was a point in time, not intentional, but there was a point in time where these things became confused in the minds of many people, and they're still confused today. And so when people think of Christianity, they have an idea of Christianity that is a far cry from what we find in the New Testament. And so we've been inoculated, as I said, with this weak form of Christianity, and we become immune to the real thing. And it is now our responsibility to take the gospel seriously, to go back and use the true gospel as the real story and a corrective on society as a whole. Yes?
Absolutely. Absolutely. The church went along to get along. And, um, and so we, um, a lot of times in the 1960s, for example, what was coming out of the pulpit was more politics than it was gospel. And so I just, I, th I think these are the things that we see. And I think all of these things, these factors contributed to where we are today. Penn? Yeah, I mean, it's a perfect storm of things. And, and I'll just leave you on this note. All of this can be very discouraging and depressing for those of you who were raised in a nominally Christian environment in America, and it can be very discouraging. It actually presents us with a great opportunity because for the first time, you can go out and preach the gospel of the New Testament in such a way that young people today say, I've never heard that before. And when they say they've never heard it, what they mean is, I've never heard anything like that before because it's no watered-down version. But the challenge, of course, is that when you proclaim it like that, it is a radical thing. It is a thing that will be a corrective on government, on individual lives, and oftentimes you're going to discover that people will be made to feel uncomfortable. And what they will say, just what this governor said, is maybe at a more convenient time. The challenge for us is to be willing to take any risk to draw the line, and to give all for the sake of him who gave everything for us. That's the way you save the world. That's the way you save America. And that's the way Jesus Christ saves lives. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful story of the Apostle Paul and his trials. Grant us the grace, Lord, like him, to consider ourselves dead to the world but alive to Christ. Grant us the courage to draw that line, to be gracious and generous, faithful, but also willing to suffer everything, if necessary, for the sake of him who suffered everything for us, that in losing the world, we may gain our souls. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.